Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Today is the first time that we are going to talk through some case studies with you. We are getting all of these case studies from the book titled Physical Therapy Case Files. We will link the book in the description for you. You can also find it in our resource corner in our highlight reel on Instagram. One thing that we want to disclose is that some resources may have slightly different bits of information in them. We understand that different resources say different things at times. We found this a lot during our studying, and we're still finding it now. We recommend to go by Campbell or the APTA fact sheets as your primary resource, or send a message to anyone who has developed any of these resources for further clarification. Remember, we do not create the resources and are not always sure why there are certain discrepancies between resources. This week, we talked to you about burns and hemophilia, so we will continue on with these topics with our case studies. We're going to be going over three cases with you, two about burns and one about hemophilia. We suggest that as we go through these cases, you take the time to read each chapter to get the most out of the information. The chapters are easy to read and short. Let's start by reading case number 14 about an anterior neck burn. A previously healthy three-year-old boy was taken to the emergency department by ambulance. The child had tipped a pan off of the stove and hot grease poured over his chin and anterior neck. He sustained thermal injury due to a scald burn with a mix of superficial, superficial and deep partial thickness and full thickness burn depth. The parents immediately called 911. While waiting for the ambulance to arrive, the mother attempted to put a towel moistened with ice water over the wound, but the child vigorously resisted with any attempt to touch the burned area. She then poured honey over the wound. When the ambulance arrived, the mother told the emergency medical technicians that she had heard that honey was good for burns. While en route to the hospital, intravenous fluids were begun and the child received a low dose of morphine for pain control. The emergency department physician consulted the wound care nurse, 
but this incident occurred early Saturday morning and the wound care nurse would not be available to provide a consultation until Monday. The physician ordered physical therapy for immediate examination of the type and size of burn as well as treatment of the burn with recommendations for dressings. There was also an order for whirlpool treatment to clean the wound. The emergency department physician informed the physical therapist that the child would be airlifted to a verified burn center after initial physical therapy examination and treatment. The parents are distraught because they had been encouraging the child to participate in cooking on other occasions and felt their neglect of the child caused the burn to occur. They are very concerned about the child's welfare and have many questions regarding the healing process and treatments involved. When you read this, you should already have your gears grinding about things you know. Think about our episode last week and what we reviewed. He has all four levels of burn depth involvement. Think about how to classify each of those burn depths and what you expect to see in each of them. What are their hallmarks? En route to the hospital, they're already working on pain management and fluid replacement. We talked about those being our first goals in burn management. This is how you have to approach the case studies. Read the vignette and start to think about what you know and what you don't know. Focus on this as an area to improve on. Let's talk about some physical therapy considerations for this patient. General physical therapy plan of care and goals include to promote healing, prevent or minimize loss of range of motion, strength and aerobic functional capacity, maximize physical function and safety, and minimize secondary impairments such as infection and or excessive scarring. You also want to focus on returning the child to daily functional activities, including play, and develop a reasonable home exercise program that can be incorporated into daily care of the child. You also want to optimize parent and or caregiver education and health-related quality of life. Physical therapy interventions include parent and caregiver education on burn wounds, the healing process, risk of infection, and the procedure for dressing changes. You should also educate them on the risk of contractures and scarring, proper hygiene and wound management, proper handling of the child, including positions for carrying, sleeping, and meals. There should be a multidisciplinary communication, especially a handoff of the information to healthcare professionals. Precautions during physical therapy include the use of proper infection control techniques, monitoring the skin during wound care, as well as maintaining the safety of the child during positioning and dressing changes to prevent excessive pain and or injury. Some complications that could interfere with physical therapy include infection, respiratory problems due to the location of that anterior neck, and emotional distress of the child and family or caregivers. A few main points that the chapter hits are listed at the end with some questions and evidence-based recommendations. These include the following. Immediate priorities in children with burns include evaluation and treatment to provide optimal pain relief and prevent unnecessary wound exposure that can lead to infection. This has grade C evidence. The faces, legs, activity, cry, consolability scale, also known as FLACC, is an established behavior pain assessment tool that is reliable and valid in critically ill children unable to self-report. This has grade B evidence and is valid for children two months to seven years. Make sure you are familiar with the FLACC scale categories and how to score it. 
Lastly, for wound cleaning and debridement of an anterior neck burn in a young child, tap water or saline with gentle mechanical gauze debridement is an optimal choice over submersion in a whirlpool. This has grade C evidence. Let's talk this through briefly. Why might whirlpool not be a great choice? Well, the child would need to be submerged up to their neck. That seems challenging. Also, a three-year-old may not have complete control of bowel and bladder, so that isn't a good idea for infection management. This is just a brief example of how you will need to break down questions on the exam to find the best answer. Last, let's go over a few facts about burns listed in the book. These may assist you in the questions at the end of the chapter. First off, the caregiver description of the incident should match the burn injury or abuse needs to be considered. Scald burns are the most common type of injury at age five years or younger. The Lund-Browder chart allows the burn to be estimated by percentage of the body part based on age. The Lund-Browder chart accounts for the different shape and size of the body segments as kids age. It is recommended in children and is thought to be more accurate than the rule of nines. The rule of nines splits the body into 11 different areas, each equaling 9%, with genitalia equaling 1%. We talked about this in our previous episode, but we want to reiterate that review of the Lund-Browder chart is recommended. If a burn is infected, healing time may be longer, the risk of scarring is greater, and the risk for systemic infection increases. Surgery is sometimes indicated, but not always. When cleaning a wound, water temperature should be between 92 and 98 degrees Fahrenheit. The case study does outline a variety of burn interventions that we think are helpful to review just to get a feel. Next, we're going to move on to case number 15, which is a Palmer hand burn. So this one, the patient is a two-year-old female who sustained 1% total body surface area, deep partial thickness burn to the left palm, left lateral thumb, and the volar surface of the middle and distal phalanx of digits two to four. The patient sustained the burns when she placed her hand on the surface of a glass-covered fireplace. Current plans are to treat the injury conservatively with twice daily dressing changes of silver sulfadiazine cream, gauze, and burn netting. The physical therapist is examining the patient in the emergency department prior to the patient's admission to the hospital. Deep partial thickness burns are the more severe second-degree burns. The epidermis and a deeper portion of the dermis is involved here. There is increased sensitivity to pain and temperature. These burns tend to be very painful because nerve endings in the dermis are exposed or damaged. They will have that marbled white edematous appearance. The texture will be firm and blister will be large and thick walled. Also remember, this is a small burn, but like we said in our last episode, the hand is a very delicate spot with an inherent risk for potential functional deficits. So we said if the burns are in difficult areas such as the hands, face, eyes, ears, feet, perineum, or if the burns are associated with other injuries, they're probably going to go to a burn center. Generally, the physical therapy considerations are pretty consistent between a palmar hand burn and an anterior neck burn, as discussed in the last case. Some additional things to consider include splinting the patient into an appropriate position to prevent range of motion loss and contracture, as well as being on the lookout for compartment syndrome and hypertrophic scarring. Let's go into evidence-based recommendations. 
First, range of motion exercises, positioning, and splinting are important modalities to prevent loss of range of motion or contractures associated with burn injury. This has grade C evidence. Multimodal distraction can be utilized during dressing changes and procedures to reduce pain, anxiety, and improve healing. This has grade B evidence. Pressure garments worn 23 hours a day in the maturation phase of, of wound healing may minimize hypertrophic scarring. This has grade C evidence. Last, silicone gel sheets worn 24 hours per day may decrease thickness, pigmentation, pain, vascularity, and itching, and increase the pliability of hypertrophic scars. This has grade B evidence. We're going to review types of burns again because this is very important. Superficial burns only involve the epidermis. The appearance is red with no blistering. Superficial partial thickness burns involve the entire epidermis as well as the papillary or top layer of the dermis. It appears red, moist, and weepy. They are also extremely painful. Deep partial thickness burns involve the epidermis, papillary layers, and the reticular layer of the dermis. They appeared mottled white, pink, or deep red, and these burns can still be pretty painful. They are at high risk for hypertrophic scarring and contracture. Full thickness burns involve the epidermis, the entire dermis, and the subcutaneous tissue. They appear white, yellow, or brown, charred, and or leathery. In this case specifically, we are discussing a palmer hand burn. A palmar cupping deformity is often seen with burns to the palm. To counteract the pull of the scar tissue, the hand and fingers must be placed into extension. Factors that increase the risk of hypertrophic scarring include deeper burns, younger age, infection, healing greater than 21 days, darkened pigmented skin, tension on the wound from aggressive stretching, and the location of the burn. Some other burn-specific things worth remembering. After grafting, you usually have five days where you do nothing to allow for graft adherence. The maturation phase of burn healing usually lasts 1.5 to 3 years, so the patient may need longer-term therapy to manage range of motion, strength, and ADLs. Last, pressure therapy. We talked about this in our last episode, but it bears repeating. Pressure therapy limits collagen synthesis and promotes that realignment of collagen already present in the scar by restricting the supply of blood, oxygen, and nutrients to the scar tissue. Pressure garment therapy has been shown to soften scars, thin scars, and improve clinical appearance. The best results were in moderate to severe burns, so the authors of the study recommend custom pressure garments for deep partial thickness burns burns in children and young adults, burns in individuals with darker pigmented skin, and in instances where vascular supply or protection is needed. The garments need to be worn 23 hours a day and they need to fit properly. Now, moving away from burns, let's go over our final case for this episode, number 22, hemophilia. The patient is a 10-year-old boy with severe hemophilia A and a history of right elbow target joint. He is on a prophylaxis schedule three times per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, using recombinant factor eight. The boy was playing at recess on a Tuesday afternoon when he jumped five feet from the jungle gym platform, landing on his feet. 
Before school ended for the day, he felt his left ankle tingling and it became increasingly warm, swollen, and painful. Recognizing this as a hemoarthrosis, he went to the school nurse who elevated and ACE wrapped his ankle. She also called his father, who notified the hemophilia treatment center of the bleed to receive instructions on a plan of care. The boy's father came to school and infused his son with recumbent factor eight within two hours of the onset of symptoms. After dinner that evening, the pain and swelling had decreased. The boy had been reclined with his left leg elevated for several hours. Before bed, he received another dose of the recumbent factor eight as prescribed by the hemophilia treatment center hematologist. The next day, he used crutches around school to keep weight off of his left foot. By the weekend, he progressed to walking without crutches, but he was not allowed back to normal play. On Monday, the boy went to his treatment center for a follow-up appointment. No imaging was performed, but the physical therapist at the treatment center noted pain-free limited left ankle range of motion. After brief assessment by the treatment center physical therapist, the hematologist made a referral to outpatient physical therapy for left ankle range of motion and strengthening. So just some facts for you on hemophilia. Hemophilia is a bleeding disorder characterized by a deficiency in the protein factor 8 or factor 9. It is an X-linked recessive trait mutation affecting about 20,000 in the United States. Men with hemophilia will pass the hemophilia gene, but it will not be expressed. However, any daughter of a man with hemophilia carries the gene and is known as the obligate carrier. The obligate carrier has a one in four chance of having a child with hemophilia and a one in four chance of having a daughter who carries the gene. People with hemophilia do not bleed faster, but rather longer than those without a blood clotting disorder. Physical therapy considerations are listed out for the patient with hemophilia. A general physical therapy plan and goals include minimizing or preventing the loss of range of motion, strength, and aerobic capacity, minimize secondary impairments and maximize function, joint protection, and quality of life, as well as prevention of future bleeding episodes. Physical therapy interventions include patient and family education in the prevention and management of hemophilic bleeding, weight management, safe activities for play, promoting range of motion to prevent contractures, as well as exercise to maximize strength and balance for protection from injury and joint bleeding. Precautions during physical therapy include joint protection, prevention of a new bleeding episode, as well as pre-treatment with factor replacement prior to therapy session. Complications during physical therapy could include a new bleeding episode, pain, and contractures. Evidence-based recommendations include the following. During an acute joint or muscle bleed in a person with hemophilia, range of motion should be avoided and rest should be promoted. The functional independence score in hemophilia, otherwise known as FISH, is a reliable and valid performance-based assessment tool that objectively measures the functional mobility of an individual with hemophilia. In persons with hemophilia, maintenance of healthy weight has a positive effect on joint health. All of these statements have grade B evidence according to the case studies book. 
Remember, we talked about the importance of joint health in our review episode on hemophilia. We need to protect those joints as much as possible. Let's go over some main facts and pearls from the chapter. A target joint has had multiple bleeds within a short period of time. The process of bleeding into a joint breaks down the components of the joint, including the synovium and cartilage. Over time, the synovium overgrows to compensate, resulting in hypertrophy. We reviewed the five stages of hemophilic arthropathy in our last episode. When an acute bleed occurs, rest in a pain-free position is important. Over time, if range of motion is not restored, a contracture can result. The clinical presentation of an acute joint bleed include swelling and erythema, tingling, limited range of motion, and tightness, as well as tachycardia and hypotension. It is imperative to infuse with factor at the first sign of a bleed. It is imperative to infuse with factor at the first sign of a bleed. The days following a bleed require offloading, rest, elevation, and splinting for compression and protection to assist with healing. Ice is not recommended as a primary means to assist blood coagulation. During the acute phases of a joint bleed, range of motion should be limited to pain-free range of motion only. It is important to treat every joint bleed. That takes us to the end of this episode. Please let us know if you have feedback on the structure of this episode and if it was helpful for you. This is a new format for us this year, and we want to make sure that you are getting the most out of this podcast. We will see you guys next week for our collaboration episode with Helen and Jessica from PCS Advantage, as well as additional cases from the Case Files book. Happy studying! Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.